When I first met Anne, I was around seven years old and prowling the shelves of my second grade classroom in search of a book I hadn't yet read. I was a fast and obsessive reader and rereader, and I often got in trouble for reading at inappropriate times or in inappropriate places, such as during recess, at the dinner table, or while actively walking through the halls at school. So when I found the thickest book in our class library, I grabbed it greedily off the shelf. This would be my greatest achievement yet, a real chapter book, one of those classics that adults were always talking about. It was Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery. I don't know what I was trying to prove exactly, but whatever it was, I was pretty sure this would prove it. But my conquest was not to be that year. While I appreciated the beautiful imagery of the first few chapters, I just found it boring. This super flowery language and the slow, gently paced plot just couldn't hold my attention. This is the first time in my life I remember giving up on a book. I snuck it back onto the shelf, ashamed at my failure. However, this was around the age when various family members who knew me as a voracious reader decided that copies of Anne were the perfect gift for birthdays and Christmases, and I amassed a small collection which sat untouched for a while. I was wary of the book which had once beaten me, but finally around age nine or so, I found myself bored and picked up one of the copies on a whim, the beautiful illustrated one, one of two editions I still have, and I started to read. And I've loved it ever since. For anyone who hasn't read the book or seen one of the many film adaptations, the only acceptable one is the one by Canadian Public Broadcasting. It's really good. Anne of Green Gables tells the story of Anne Shirley, a redheaded orphan girl whose parents died when she was a baby and who has lived in a series of homes owned by distant relatives where she was at best unwanted before finally ending up in an orphanage. There's a mix up at the orphanage and Anne is brought to the town of Avonlea on Prince Edward Island to live with Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, who are a middle-aged brother and sister pair living on their family farm, Green Gables, who actually wanted to adopt a boy to help them out around the farm. Anne is devastated, but Matthew sees a kindred spirit in her and Marilla eventually decides that she can stay. So the novel follows Anne as she grows up in Avonlea, where her very active imagination and fiery temper are constantly getting her into what she calls scrapes, difficult and often comical situations. But she still manages to charm pretty much everyone she meets with the unique way she sees the world, whether they're willing to admit it or not. This is how she charms the reader too. For me, at least, it's impossible not to be swept up in the beauty of the world seen through Anne's eyes. We owe a lot of Pinterest quotes to her, such as, I'm so glad I live in a world where there are Octobers. And it's been my experience that you can nearly always enjoy things if you make up your mind firmly that you will. And isn't it nice to think that tomorrow is a new day with no mistakes in it yet? My personal favorite though, the one that really stood out to me when I was a kid, actually enjoying the book for the first time is this. It's Anne's second night at Green Gables. Marilla hasn't yet told her that she can stay, but is already beginning her campaign of bringing her up properly. Anne is getting ready for bed, and Marilla tells her she must kneel and say her prayers before going to sleep. To which Anne responds, why must people kneel to pray? If I really wanted to pray, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd go out into the great big field all alone, or into the deep, deep woods, and I'd look up into the sky, up, up, up into that lovely blue sky that looks as if there was no end to its blueness, and then I'd just feel a prayer. Like Anne, I wasn't a particularly religious child. I went to church because I had to. I was six. I wasn't going to 
not go to church with my parents. I was baptized because it seemed like the thing to do, sang hymns because I like to sing and like the attention, and occasionally said the prayers my parents had taught me when I was struck at bedtime by the guilty realization that I hadn't said them in a while. I never really understood what it was all about. I was just along for the ride and the donuts. But Anne's imagined form of prayer struck a chord in me. I had not realized that prayer was something one could feel, particularly in response to nature. And I was excited by this idea. I wanted to try it. It seemed like a way to actually be close to God, something infinitely richer, or at least more romantic than now I lay me down to sleep or whatever the hell the Lord's prayer was talking about. Absorbing the beauty of the world and sending it skyward and maybe even getting something in return. That somehow I understood and longed for. It was the summer after freshman year of college, and I was visiting my brother at his new home in Vail, Colorado, where he worked for the ski resort as a lift operator during the winter and as part of the grounds team during the summer. He and his friends liked to spend their days off in the summer camping in their hammocks at the end of random forest service roads in the mountains. And they took me along on one of these trips. I was already starting to develop the chronic illness I struggled with for years. If you've been here before, you've probably heard me talk about it. I was well into it, in fact, but hadn't yet come to grips with what was going on in my body. And as a result, my anxiety was at an all time high. I was in pain and peeing constantly, and I had no idea why. I just knew I was miserable and incredibly stressed about it. So spending a night in the wilderness with my brother and his friends, whom I didn't exactly love, <laughs> and no access to a bathroom wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing, but I went along anyway. We bumped along the dirt road in Isaac's little Mazda, twisting and turning and climbing until they found a spot they liked. It didn't look particularly special to me, but it was where they parked the car. <laughs> we slung our hammocks up between some likely looking trees and then we explored for a while and it turned out to be gorgeous. There was this beautiful gorge with a series of waterfalls and about a hundred yards above us, there was a reservoir surrounded by mountains. It was really beautiful, but I struggled to enjoy it. When it got dark, we made a campfire, cooked a simple meal and sat around. I was anxious and in pain and didn't like Isaac's friend much. When one did a line of coke off his cracked phone screen, I decided to call it a night and head to bed. The fire was a solid 20 or 30 feet down the slope from where we'd hung the hammocks. I hadn't brought anything to line mine with, and so the night mountain air was shockingly cold for summer, and my sleeping bag wasn't nearly enough insulation on, the own, on its own because there was cold air under it. So I curled up in this tight little ball, freezing and anxious and really uncomfortable. And it was just impossibly dark. I couldn't see the light from the fire up here. I could barely hear the boys' voices. Suddenly I felt alone and very afraid. <laughs> I wanted more than anything just to go home, not back to Isaac's apartment, but my real home, far away from this freezing mountainside in the middle of nowhere. Despite my terror and discomfort, the night sky above me captured my attention. There was no rainfly on the hammock. So it was just the sky above me. And I had never literally slept under the stars before. And these stars were like none I'd seen before or since. We were far from any cities or towns. So there was no man-made light to dim their brightness. I was in pain and afraid, but I didn't want to be. I wanted to be able to feel how special that moment was. To drink in the beauty the sky broken occasionally by the branches of the pine tree is whispering above me. This was before I made my return to organized religion, but somehow I still knew what I had to do. I looked up, 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 and I felt a prayer. 
I asked God to soothe my fears and let me instead absorb the beauty of this moment. And I know this sounds crazy, but at that exact moment, a shooting star whisked by directly over me. And peace bloomed in my chest. I still couldn't sleep. I was too cold and uncomfortable, but I was content to spend the night watching the stars and just feeling prayers of wonder and gratitude. In Matthew's gospel, not Matthew Cuthbert of Anne of Green Gables, but Matthew, the guy who wrote the gospel, Jesus tells us, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And every time I read this passage, I think, well, fuck, that's easy for you to say, Jesus. But <laughs> this time I find myself focusing less on the don't worry part and more on the evidence Jesus gives for the don't worry part. What I think he's actually saying here is, look, look at how fucking beautiful this world is. And you, you are a part of it. And that means that you are beautiful and wonderful and finite and loved by God at least as much as the rest of this beautiful creation. And yes, life is messy. And yes, there's plenty to worry about. And yes, that will always be true. But just look around. There's comfort in that, I think. Real comfort. There's also power. When Anne, at Marilla's insistence, does finally say her very first out loud verbal prayer, she thanks God for all the beautiful things she's already seen during her brief time in Avonlea. A blooming tree-lined avenue she calls the White Way of Delight. The pond she has dubbed the Lake of Shining Waters. Marilla's geranium, which she immediately names Bonnie. And the blossoming cherry tree outside her window, which she affectionately calls the Snow Queen. And she asks God for two things. That she will please be allowed to stay at Green Gables. And that she will be good looking when she grows up. The remarkable thing about Anne is that she clings to beauty as a lifeline. During the truly terrible early years of her life, she refused to let go of wonder and it kept her alive. And in the places like the orphanage where there was absolutely nothing beautiful to grab onto, she resorted to imagining it, conjuring it into being in order to keep going. It was a struggle, but she made it. Once in Avonlea, she doesn't gloss over the suffering she's endured. In fact, we see throughout the book that she feels every single emotion very deeply, but she embraces the beauty around her with unrivaled enthusiasm. And this is just how she moves through her life. And it's transformative and sometimes annoying for pretty much everybody she meets, which is perhaps after all, what makes it such a compelling and life-giving story, a source I keep returning to time and time again. 
the last time I read the book was towards the beginning of the pandemic. I was looking for an escape. I wanted to find solace in a simpler time in a beautiful, familiar place I'd visited so many times before. What I found though, wasn't so much an escape as a reminder of how messy life always is and how beautiful my own place in the world could be. It's both. At the end of the book comes this other oft-quoted line, Dear old world, you are very lovely, and I'm glad to be alive in you. The thing is that she says this aloud to herself as she's walking home from visiting Matthew's grave. Spoiler alert, yes, he dies. He passes away suddenly of a heart attack. And the chain of events this triggers causes Anne to have to give up a hard-won scholarship in order to stay at Green Gables and care for Marilla, whose eyesight has begun to fail. The two women have grown incredibly close. Anne has fundamentally changed the way Marilla sees the world and Marilla has given her home in a beautiful place. And though Marilla would never admit it to Anne, she's brought a new appreciation of life and the world around her to Green Gables. What Anne has taught me as an adult is not that the world isn't so bad after all, but rather that the world is also beautiful. And that's part of what makes life real life possible. When Jesus is teaching about why we shouldn't worry, it seems to me that what he's offering us is not a Band-Aid, but the beauty of creation as a way to move from anxious survival towards something like real living, towards what we were made for. It's not erasure or spiritual bypassing, but rather a stepping stone, a rung on the ladder, a way forward through the suffering and mess. Consider the lilies, check out the birds, befriend a few plants. Feel prayers, real prayers, wherever you go. Maybe worry is inevitable, but so is this creation. So is imagination. So are the little fragments of loveliness that break through wherever we are. And there's power in that, in clinging to our God-given right to delight and marvel and wonder in refusing to let the impossible gorgeousness of this fucked up world be stolen from you. And yes, it's often really hard, impossible, maybe some days, and that's okay, but it's there. It's your birthright. Whether you identify more today with Anne or one of the people who scoffs at her starry-eyed worldview, the ability to marvel to have stars in your own eyes belongs to you. And it's transformational. If we're unable to see the goodness around us, how could we ever hope to make more of it? If we can't imagine a better world, how could we ever possibly get there? We were created on purpose with a sense of beauty and divine wonder. It lives within you, a spark kept alive, if nothing else, by the breath of the divine. And like Anne, you just have to claim it with everything you've got.